this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. This episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by Mass Mutual. Mass Mutual helps business owners identify and prioritize the protection and financial strategies that are critical to the ongoing success of your business. With understanding the value of your business as the foundation, they can help address the core planning pillars, which includes your family, business, future, and team, so you can help minimize risk and protect what is most likely your largest asset. Every business owner will leave their business at some point in time, either by design or by default. Let MassMutual help you stay focused on the task at hand, running your business, while together in concert with your trusted advisors, help to create a financial roadmap for long-term success and an eventual exit that's on your terms. Visit MassMutual.com. Hey, you're in for a treat because you're going to hear from Dave and Carrie Kirpin, who are the founders of Likeable Media. Think of this episode as having two distinct sections. The first section is everything Dave and Carrie did to build a sellable business. They talk a lot about productizing their service, the dangers of billing by the hour, and how they switched to an innovative system, which I won't steal their thunder or let them describe their billing model to you, which I think is really fascinating. Listen to the way they brand and name everything in their company, giving them a point of differentiation. And that's just the first half. Once you get through the first half, they get into the second section of the interview, which is all about how they negotiated the sale of their company. And here I want you to listen for what happened to them with their all cash deal. It is more common than we like to admit, but there are acquirers out there who are using a bait and switch strategy. And Dave and Carrie fell victim to that in, in their own vulnerable way, describe what that felt like and how they worked themselves out of that. They also talk interestingly about the impact financial freedom has on their lives. And you may be surprised at Carrie's response to some of the questions I had around that. Here to tell you the entire story is Dave and Carrie Kirpin. Dave and Carrie. Welcome to Build to Sell Radio. Thanks for having us. So excited. Yeah, it's, it's good to have you both here. Uh, it's a great two-for-one deal here because I know, Carrie, you've been running the company for a lot of years, seven years straight, but I know, Dave, you were involved in the start in the first you know, first seven years. So we're going to have some fun talking about this, uh, this amazing company you've started. Likeable, for folks who have never heard of it, just describe what Likeable does. You started it. It was saying, I think you go and then we'll take it. Likeable is a uh, social media and content marketing uh, agency that helps uh, brands, mostly big, big brands um, uh, build and build an audience and uh, leverage that audience to grow. Uh, So uh, we've worked with um, uh, a great number of uh, consumer brands and B2B brands through the years and um, have helped them navigate the ch- constantly changing waters of social media and content marketing to um, to to do better marketing. One of the and first social media agencies in existence. That's that's basically it's, it's social media marketing since 2007, since before social media was kind of a thing. 
And Carrie, help me understand this because these big brands like Procter and Gamble yep. or Harley Davidson, Lululemon, yep. I mean, they would have an agency, right? Like why isn't their agency doing the social stuff? Yeah. So the way that we always position ourselves, and I think you'll, you'll find in the agency space that there tends to be a trend that goes from either they want a huge generalist or they want a bunch of specialists. And if you're going to be a specialist, you have to be really good. And so the way Dave and I positioned this company was that we were much faster than a larger bureaucratic agency. We were the smartest in social. So we always said we offered faster service from the smartest in social. We knew what was happening and we're at the forefront of all of it faster than any other agency could. And with likability guaranteed, of course, like people loved working with us with a name like likable, you have to live up to that. And so how did you keep abreast of all the emerging technology like that? Would, that just sounds exhausting to me, especially And again, you're still young, but mm. like you're yeah, I mean, like you've got kids, like you're not like 25. Well, and we're, not, we're not that young. And no. stuff just emerged like every like now there's this thing called Clubhouse, which I don't understand at all. TikTok, my kids are using, but I don't get like yeah. Uh, like, how did you stay abreast of all the emerging social channels? First of all, I, we got to get you on Clubhouse. We're, I'm building a new venture oh. on top of Clubhouse right now, and you'd be amazing, John. Dave, that would be terrible. No, no that's no. all I need. <laughs> but, but I think you know, very early on, we 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 took a position of um, being becoming thought leaders, and and it was um, it was a, a, a burden, but also a huge gift. I remember we started a blog called Buzz Marketing Daily. <laughs> And my wife was That's like, we can't do this. We, you know, if, 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 you, if you do a daily blog, then you have to update it daily. And yeah. I said, exactly. Yeah. And then uh, I was fortunately one of the first people to write a book about uh, social media. And um, I, of course, I didn't really know much then, but I, I wrote what I knew, what I could figure out. And then because the world of social media changes so often, I was asked to update the book again and again. And have, I had to keep doing new editions. So I li we literally had no choice but to keep uh, to keep abreast and to keep learning. And then of course, to build a team that would do the same. Yeah, that that's what it's about. I mean, we, you, we were young when social media started and we were 20 something, you know, it was like, we were into this, like we were past, we weren't in college when Facebook became a thing, right? That's how it opened. But as soon as they expanded beyond the college market, we were like, on there. And so at that time, we were very hip and cool and like in the know. But as you grow, and as you age, no matter how interested you are, you still are not native to the technology that's being built. So the trick is about hiring people who live it and breathe it and understand the business benefits behind it. Because you can live and breathe it. My kids live and breathe it, but they have no idea how a brand should use it. So you need that hiring the business sense and the love of social. I'm glad you bring up people because, yep. and can we talk about how much revenue you guys generated? I don't know how, if that's a public number or not. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. We could say how much we grew. We could say, yeah, I, I think so. Well, we could either do, yes. we can either do revenue, revenue or, uh, uh, and not even uh, multiples, or we can yeah, do we can, even we multiples were in eight, revenue. Eight-figure revenue of yeah. adjusted gross. You could say, okay. yes, over, over $10 million. Yes. Yes. Uh, okay. So what I looked at when I was preparing for this interview was yeah. your revenue per employee. Yes. And if I'm doing the math right, it was around a couple hundred thousand dollars yep. in revenue per employee. Yep. That to me sounds high. Because when I think of social, I think of maybe $100,000, $125,000 of revenue per employee. Yep. You're almost twice that. Yeah. And so it begs the question in my mind for a service business, like how did you get such high revenue per employee? Okay. 
deep, deep, deep expertise in a, a niche area. We understood and could provide the consulting around social. See, there were different, we measured profitability around different areas of our business. And the consultative area was in high demand and we could charge a lot for it. So what we did was we really it looked at value-based pricing. We said, we're gonna go heavy into the consultative space, lots around that. And then around the, um, the creative space, we ended up converting our office to a full studio so that we could use that sort of as inventory too. We looked at everything that we did as inventory, I think, you know, like we had so much space in the office. It was, it was kind of like um, when you go into a restaurant and you're looking at all the spaces inventory, we did the same thing with office space and we did it as um, content studio places to shoot. Like we knew we could do eight shoots at a time. And so we <laughs> knew that we could do that and tap into freelancers and do all kinds of things to help maximize that. And so I think it was heavy expertise and consultative and then using um, the creative thinking about creative as inventory. So um, how much available inventory do we have and pricing based on that inventory. If I didn't have availability and I had to pull in a shoot really last minute, I could charge more for that. Got it. And so when you say shoots, you're talking about little videos that you would do for a brand? Exactly. I mean, brands need a massive amount of content. They need content all the time. It comes from a variety of places. There's user-generated content. That's what their fans are posting there's influencer content. And then there's content like where people pay millions of dollars to shoot for TV ads that run for 30 seconds. There's content that can live and be repurposed for their social advertising that lives on their organic channels, et cetera. And there is, um, these brands are looking for content that is socially native, uh, meaning that what works on your billboard is not gonna work on social, no one cares, it looks like sure. an ad. But if it looks like an experience, they're interested. And so that content creation was really great. And together, we opened a process for charging for that. Actually, after reading Built to Sell, called the Content <laughs> Credit System. Where Did we say it again? What was the name it, of it? Okay, it was called the Content Credit System. This is one of Dave's greatest hits. Greatest hits. Oh, it's yours. It was yours. I'm so excited about up. this. No, the, you talk about it. Explain the Content Credit System. I mean, most agencies charge based on hours, and we thought that model was uh, first of all broken for the for the uh, end client, but but. But really, for the agency too, it um, it doesn't it doesn't provide the same level of uh, predictable revenue, and so we built a content carry. I, I don't and know it why she's giving me you credit. To go slow when you're billing by the hour, you're looking to bill more hours. You're looking to go slow. Right, right. It's a, it's a perverse incentive. No. So Carrie and team built a, a content credit system where um, the the bottom line is clients were paying by deliverable instead of paying by hours. They're paying for the actual deliverable product. X number of videos, Y number of tweets, Z number of blog posts, and packaging in those as a, in a subscription model allowed us to sell annual recurring subscriptions. So whereas most agencies are, are, are going project to project, which doesn't create value and doesn't create predictable revenue, uh, we were able to create a, re a, 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 a recurring revenue stream based on client subscriptions to the content credit system. What it also did was it allowed, so you'd subscribe to a certain number of content credits, you'd get X pieces of credit, uh, X pieces of content a month, and it could adjust in one month you do videos, one month you do tweets, you get it, it all mixed up. But it also allowed account managers to upsell because they were selling credits versus saying, oh, we need to sell you X hours of our time. So it allowed people to remove that discomfort 
and just talk about actually the work in a really cool way. That, that'll be, that'll be 10 credits. It's a lot easier than saying that'll be $10,000. That's right. You know, it's like time. if you're at the casino and you, and you, and you, and you run out of chips, you just, you need more chips, yeah. you know? So if you that run out of credits, area. you need more credits yeah. for more content. And to Carrie's point in terms of, instead of a perverse incentive, we're incentivized to do better, faster work so that they run out of credits and they want more. I love this. <laughs> it's from you, my friend. Yeah, it's all you. It is from you. And we really, we thought about how to productize an agency as best as possible. And again, nothing is ever going to be um, totally non-custom. And you want, as an agency, you're a, ser you're a service provider. You're not there for a transactional relationship. But we wanted to make things as scalable and repeatable as, as possible. And then when I talked about with the inventory stuff, that's with cost per credit. A cost per credit would go up if we had fewer available resources. And so we really looked at how to do inventory-based pricing around that, but still offer a consultative approach. So many questions. I don't even know where to start. Oh. I love this. So it's called the content credit system. And yep. so presumably uh, a video would require more credits than Correct. a tweet. Correct. And, exactly. a, and a customer would sign up for a, a bank of, of credits yep. per and month you know, or per year. Right. right. Let's say you have 40 credits a month. They're bankable. So if you don't use them in one month, they go they to them, they roll to the next month. And um, I mean, you might have cr enough credits for a 30 second video and six tweets and seven edited images and four um, uh, uh, blog posts, 150, you know, uh, uh, 150 word blog posts. And so you can mix and match. Um, and, and it's really based on what you what the client needs. Um, but that sort of a a subscription model, I think, was something that a lot, most clients that we talked to hadn't seen before uh, on, from agencies. And I think it was pretty, pretty welcome by most. And this is fabulous. But I will tell you, during the sale process, it was a little, it was great, but it was a little bit, they loved it, but it was a little bit different from when you're talking about a straight up agency. So it required, so what I would say it did was it allowed us to differentiate. It allowed us to be profitable. It allowed us to have a scalable system that we taught our staff. And then when we got to sale, we had to almost learn, I kept talking about this, like how to be bilingual, like, okay, it, they, they understand hours. So how are you gonna speak in hours? What's your average hourly rate? And so you had to learn that piece, even though this was something that worked from a marketing perspective for us, it worked from a profitability lever perspective for us, we had to learn to be bilingual too. And that, that's advice I would have as you're looking to productize and look at that stuff is really, I know for me, I had to think about how I could speak during the sales process in hours and also describe the competitive advantage of the credit system. What were clients' reaction to when you first introduced the, the content credit system to them? Okay, so we, we started with, and I, this I remember well, this is many years, this is, I think 2015 we, we did this, but we started with a couple of key clients. And one of the first things we did was say like, people we had relationships, we said, would you take a chance on this type of system? We're testing it. And people loved it because remember also procurement is looking for ways to have new ways to charge agency and work with agencies and all of that stuff. So in some, at first it was very, very exciting. Then when we started selling in new clients, we only sold it in the credit system. And we said, if they don't do this for the content piece of our business, and again, this is only for the content production piece of our business, um, we won't take the business. And we started being really discerning about what we were taking on and they grew it. Then we surveyed them twice a year 
on the credit system. Once we got people on board, do you like it? Do you understand it? Are there challenges? And there were challenges. I mean, there were definitely challenges. When you get to an end of a year, if you're not renewing, if you decide you're not renewing and you have leftover credits, what happens with that? If you've used too many credits and you're not continuing for the next year, what happens with that? So there were all of these nuances that we learned along the way and built systems for, which could have only come with feedback and time. We wouldn't have known that starting out. And so asking for constant feedback, but, but people were willing to take a chance. And then we knew it sold. It actually worked better initially in the selling process because people like to hear something new. They like to hear something different than the reality of it when it started, because that system had to be perfected. There were lots, lots and lots of bumps. Yeah, what advice. Sorry, go ahead, Dave. I was just saying one of the biggest challenges was um, for bigger clients with multiple agencies uh, that when if they were comparing apples to oranges on their end from an ROI perspective, that that sometimes got, yeah, got challenging. Yeah, there were there were some clients that literally demanded that we uh, show them the other way, even if we were billing them one way, we show them, oh, well, what would this look like if you were to bill us like all yes. of our other agencies? Yep. What advice would you have? Because there are a lot of people listening to this right now who know that billing by the hour is not ideal. Yep. They know that they've heard all the scale issues, and that, but they just haven't found a way to get bridge the gap to a different model, project-based billing, value-based billing, in your case, content credits, et cetera. They're really feeling like they're swimming upstream or into a headwind because the industry just builds that way. And that's what all the competitors do. So what advice would you have with someone who, who wants to make the leap to something like the content credit system, but just is hesitant? I, I would ask uh, them to talk to their clients about the desired outcome. So nobody wants to pay hourly either. I mean, why would they, you don't really fundamentally want to pay for hours. You want to pay for a pro you want to pay for a desired outcome. Right. So what does that desired outcome look like? And how can we develop a product and deliverable of that desired outcome that works on my end uh, economically and also gives the client what that desired outcome is at the end of the day? So for example, if, if, um, if I'm selling um, IT security services, normally always an hourly basis, what am I really selling? I'm selling peace of mind. So. What if, what if there were a, a monthly subscription that offers me unlimited support um, for, for a certain amount of money? If I could figure out how to make that work on my back end, um, then that might be a product worth experimenting with and, and then running the math on that with a few clients and seeing how that works. That's, that's one example. But ultimately, if, I, if I'm paying for an IT security firm, I don't want to pay for hours. I want to pay for peace of mind. So how can I get there? that's how I would sort of back into what that product might look like. I would say, name it, highly um, package it, make it sound great, wholly believe in it and be willing to walk away if people don't follow the direction you're going in. I mean, that's one of the things that was in your book and originally was like, okay, we're only going to sell this and we're, we're going to say no to stuff that we've been saying yes to this whole time. Um, and so I think that's important. At the same time, by the way, though, have the ability to um, be bilingual. So if somebody will buy it from you, but they want to understand it in terms that their boss can understand, that makes complete sense. And so we, we always were able to convert to hours if we needed to, but you had to buy into the belief that pricing by deliverable for social media um, can help you have a better presence. 
Love it. The naming of it was a, a thing I wanted to get into. So yep. it was called the content credit system. Yep. Is that right? So yep. the, the T, the C, the C, and the S were all capitalized, I'm guessing? It was just always known as con- the content credit system. Content so was, well, content cubes is different. We name everything. So content okay. cubes is our process for subscription. Yeah. So we always named and marketed everything. So the content credit system is how we charge. Content cubed was how we executed, which was consult, create, connect, the three areas of what we did. Every piece of that is productized, and then all of them together form what the subscription is. So first we consult, we listen, we tell you what's out there in the world, what you need to do. Then we create, so we have a full content studio to be able to build it, and then we connect using influencers, paid social media, and community management. It's always the same. If you buy a full subscription, that's what you get, but we are also modular. You can buy pieces of that product. So it's designed to be able to be sold and have products that meet any particular need of someone in social media. So it's always about the naming, always about the trademark game. We always played with that, always always leaned into that. And always like, it's a little bit of the magic of what you do. You're an agency, right? People are hiring you for that creative energy. And so using that for yourselves is just key. What else did you name out of curiosity? Oh my God, so many things. A training, a training program called Smarter Social. Smarter Social helped combat the um, internal, um, social media going internal. Everyone hires internally, but things change and you're in your own ecosystem and your bubble. And so you lose perspective from an outside agency. So we would come in and do internal trainings and refreshes and all kinds of stuff. That did really well. Dave, Dave's named a million things. We did a conference called Likeable You, um, allowing uh, clients and prospects to come in and, and, and learn from the smartest in social. Um, we, the, the, the name itself, I mean, Likeable itself, obviously was a very, very valuable uh, piece of the puzzle. We were able to own a word and, um, and a pretty popular word and a pretty... Um, the word is associated positively, right? So, so being able to own 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 the word likable um, in 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 our name itself, and then you know have a likable blog and a likable media and a likable podcast and a um, likable books, etc., uh, was 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 very valuable. A lot of people listening to this will be curious to know how did you make the leap from practitioner to 50, 60 employee company. Because in, especially in social, where there is, you're really just selling people's time at the end of the day, yep. uh, even though we can package it up differently, et cetera. It, you know, the, as David Olivier said, the assets go up and down the elevator every night. You know, there's no hard, tangible things that you offer with the exception of the studio, maybe in your case. I, I think a lot of people are like, but I mean, anybody can hold their shingle out as a social consultants and, and a lot of people do on Upwork, right? And you could hire them for, you know, pennies on the dollar. How did you guys go from just offering your services, sort of your time, your expertise to a 50 employee company? Like that, 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 that's a big switch. And I'd be curious. Well, I will tell you, you know, Dave, Dave spends a lot of time crediting me for the latter half of the business. The scale of the business and moving beyond the two of us was absolutely his vision of how we were going to grow. So you have to tell the story of how you how you grew. You have to tell Buzz Builder a little, too, I think. What do you think? Uh, sure. I'll okay, tell, your, that, tell I mean, your thoughts. I, I think the, big, the biggest thing is mindset. I mean, I, 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 yes. I'm president of EO New York, and uh, 
and I mentor quite a few uh, small business owners. And the reality is that um, there's a huge difference between an entrepreneur and a small business owner. And most small business owners aren't able to think as entrepreneurially and they aren't able to get out of their own way. And they are too stuck working in the business versus on the business. And it's, it's funny because people talk about it all the time and yet they're still unable to, to, to really execute and to get out of their own way. And I think one thing that we were good at from the start is hiring people to do the work so that we could focus on building the business. In the very beginning, when we had uh, when we had no uh, uh, staff, or staff or revenue, <laughs> the way we did that was in hiring uh, buzz builders who were uh, and interns, uh, and we built up our buzz builder force. I mean, we had sixty uh, uh, buzz builders uh, working for college credit at the beginning, and and a stipend, um, uh, and a stipend. Uh, but um, we, you know, we, we were able to manage resources by delegating to uh, very, very young, very, very inexperienced people. Now, as we as we grew and we started working with more and more sophisticated, larger uh, paying clients, we we had to go upstream with our staff as well, of course. Um, but what we were able to do at the beginning and really from there on out is to think about building teams and to think about delegating and to never I mean, I think what I'm proudest of in terms of my own uh, impact on the company of those first several years is to building a mindset where Carrie and the rest of our executives, as we built up our management team, uh, were always thinking um, on the business and not getting stuck doing the work. I mean, that that is the most typical, not only an agency uh, model, but really all small business model is, is you know, you, you, you sell the work, then you do the work, then you sell more work. Then you do that work, and of course, with with built to sell, you know, you you, you build a sales team that can uh, help to execute the work, and, and then you know you build teams that can execute the work at x you know profit per product, and then you can scale. And I and I think that that's um, we we learned a lot from you in that in that regard, John, and and and, and built to sell, and you know, in other other great great books that we read early on were uh, uh, Vern Harnish's uh, Mastering the Rockefeller Habits. Now, now uh, uh, scaling up. Um, I think that was you know key doing the strategic plan from from um, Rockefeller Habits, and I think that also I mean I am somebody who works more on the business versus um, no in the I work more in the business. Dave work would work on the business, and I think you need at the certainly at the beginning to get to a space of scale, you need to believe that you can. And so for me, having somebody as a partner who believed that we could helped me as somebody, as I'm sure many of your listeners are, you know, people who are really working and grinding in the business. It helped me realize that once we achieved a level of scale, then I could take a breath. Like I, it was very, very hard for me to imagine that. And so I, I would encourage any, any listeners who are at a smaller space to either go to that kind of abundance working on the business mindset or find a coach or somebody who helps you get there. Cause it's just not natural, especially for me, I feel, especially for women, it's very, very hard. You know, we focus on security. We focus on as business owners, you know, we want to make sure we're secure, profitable, you know, all these things. And it, and it inhibits a level of risk um, that you need to take to get to the level of scale that we ultimately did. 
One more thing I, I, I want to add, um, because I, I've, I've talked about this so often, I know what the objections are. So I know there'll be listeners that, that are thinking, well, they can't do the work as well as I can. And the answer is yes, that is 100% true. And they there being are, employees. They yes. being the employees. Uh, there were so many times, John, where I knew I was delegating work that wouldn't be done as well as I could do it and that they were going to make mistakes. And I had a choice. I could either not let them try it and do it poorly and or make mistakes, or I could, you know, uh, 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 let them let them have a shot and learn from their mistakes. And guess what? People made mistakes and people learned and people got better. And sometimes they didn't. And we moved on and let yeah. them go. And, but but either way, um, when I when we don't delegate, we, we don't give any chance at build at working on the yeah. business and, move, and and getting out of our own way. And so I'd always rather take the chance on people, um, even though I know they won't do the work as well as I, I will, because if they do the work 80 percent as well as I would have, I can I can move on and build the business. And that's enough. But also with social media, we're suddenly less, you know, you have younger people coming up. It's actually one of the few businesses where you have an advantage to be a little inexperienced because you're digitally native in a different way. So that's that's one unique thing to the social media agency that might be a little different from other places. Yeah. I, by the <laughs> way, you, you opened the interview by talking about how, you know, you didn't know so much about, you know, TikTok and whatnot. Um, I don't know about TikTok either. Right. So and, I, and I've literally had to rewrite the book on social media three times. So He's you know, not a TikTok uh, user. eventually uh, it it. It, it, you know, it, it, it is truly about building teams that uh, that know this stuff uh, better than better than we do. Well said. Let's turn to the final chapter, which yep. we always do on this show. Uh, I mean, the business is eight figure business, successful yep. business. Yep. What triggered you to think about selling? When you interview both of us and you don't give us a name, we're all, we're both okay. going to want to jump okay. in. I, you start. I, what I'll say is this, you know, we, we, we take, and we, we, we've been business partners and we've been married for, um, you know, 15 years here. And, uh, we take annual retreats, just the two of us. So, you know, we do retreats for our, our businesses, uh, but we also do retreats uh, just the two of us. And it's, uh, it's every year, it's addressing our businesses, it's addressing our family, it's addressing our careers, addressing our lives. And so as the business grew, we, we, we made it a standing item on our annual retreat. Hey, is it time to talk exit strategy yet? Or do we keep, uh, do we keep, uh, do we keep on, on building? And, you know, 2019, when we had that conversation, we said, you know what? It's time to talk exit strategy. You know, uh, uh, the, 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 the business has grown a lot. Um, we we want to de-riskify a little bit. We want to take uh, uh, some of we want to take uh, some of that value that we've created off the table and, and have some some more safety and security for our family. Um, and um, and we want to explore what that might look like. And uh, so uh, so we, we, we took the, the following year to really get our books in order. I mean, I, I mean, I Carrie did an amazing job of having the books. We, we had amazing feedback about how well she kept those books. But that said, we, we got that we got we got the books in even better order. And a year from then, 2020 obviously was a crazy year, but it was a, it was a good year for us. Actually, digital marketing uh, in many cases uh, uh, grew, and 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 in our case, it was it was a great year. Um, and then uh, you know, end of 2020 came, and we had our strategic planning retreat. And hey, a year ago we said we were going to do this. How does it look? It looks good. Let's do it. And we uh, we 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 
we just made that decision and we went to a broker and you know she told us that it would be uh, 90 days and we, we we couldn't believe it and eight, we closed 87 days later so it, it really and that was, was with a bunch of that was actually with a bunch of stops and starts which i'll tell you about i will tell you that the motivation as somebody who was in the business right so i'm i'm working and running it um i felt personally that i contributed every ounce of growth that and, and vision that i could have done on my own and dave had a variety of other successful businesses at this point. So him coming back to kind of other than, than brainstorm with me on retreats, that wasn't really happening. And I wanted to think about how I could be a part of something bigger when I wasn't yet totally done. I was afraid that if I waited too long to sell and I was feeling miserable, that any earnout I did would feel like the worst handcuffs in the world. And so I wanted to sell before I felt unhappy in the business. And I was afraid that eventually I would get unhappy because I only had enough vision to take me to X and I wasn't going to take it to a hundred million dollar company. I didn't have the risk tolerance to take it to a hundred million dollar company. And I didn't want to get so bored or unhappy or anything with where I was going. Um, I wanted to do it before that so that I could contribute. I knew I would have to be a part of something and therefore I wanted to be an energetic, involved and happy part of something. And so that's really where the timing came because I wasn't done. Like I didn't feel done. And I don't know if you're supposed to feel done. I, I've read a lot of your stuff. I didn't feel done. I felt done enough. I felt like, okay, I could be really good asset to somebody else. This is a beautiful baby that we made. Look at this profitable, gorgeous baby somebody's going to grow it and mature it and I'm going to help them do it. And that, that is truly, truly how I felt. I wasn't done, but I wasn't totally not done. That that's when, that's what the moment that hit. Perfect. I love it. And, and a great best practice that we talk about, but very hard to execute. Oh. Very few people have the, uh, I'll call it discipline yep. to know that they're not done, but they're kind of, what, what is it like? It, it's, uh, I can't remember the old expression, but it's like, um, it, it's not the beginning of the end, but it might be the end of the beginning. I don't know who right. was it. Right. Winston right. Churchill who said that? Right. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if he said it, but I'll tell you it is true because it, it's, that's exactly how I felt. And I knew I would be a good asset. I knew the team and the company was a great asset, but I knew I would be a good asset to somebody. And I couldn't tolerate, and I know a lot of entrepreneurs can, I couldn't tolerate selling and being totally checked out because theoretically you can, even with an earnout, you could just say, okay, the rest of that's on the table and maybe I won't get it, maybe I will. And I'll just sort of emotionally check out. That wasn't for me. For me, I wanted to be a part of something um, and be able to really ensure that for the next few years at least, I was really focused on making sure the business was, was set up for beautiful success. And Carrie, did you, so it sounds like you knew or assumed that any sort of deal would have an earn out component to it. Yes. Uh, what was your assumption that that would look like in terms of duration, yep. percentage at risk? Like yep. what, what was, yep. what were some of the assumptions you had? So I'll answer. And then if there's anything that you want to add on this, I, I knew that I was willing to commit to three years. I knew that no matter what, I could happily be deeply invested in three years. And I wanted to look for a place that maybe had the potential for me to do more. Like if I liked it, I could stay, it would be great. But, um, but three years was all I wanted to commit to. Um, and we knew that together. We had discussed that sort of in our planning that, that for three years, we'd be good to go. 
Um, and then in terms of risk, we knew that there was a certain amount we wanted up front. We weren't going to take so little up front um, that it wasn't going to be beneficial for us. And also, I was very concerned on the earnout, making sure that I partnered with a company that had reasonable goals. Because there are people who actually have a um, less percentage of earnout. You could have a tiny earnout with ridiculous goals. I didn't want to do that because I'm somebody who wants to hit my number. So I was actually, if I found somebody who I thought had a reasonable, attainable plan, then I might be a little bit more flexible. I wouldn't go past a number that Dave and I decide together, but I might be more flexible if you had an earnout number that was seemed like you know something that made sense for me. And and when it comes to earnouts, I think people maybe have never gone through one. Maybe it, it would be helpful to share. You know, is it in your case like an all or nothing deal, like either hit it or you don't, or is it sort of shades of gray? There, there are different sort of tranches that, that would trigger different payouts. So there are two tranches of payouts based on extremely, the reason we took this deal was that the goals were basically to keep the business as is, you know, slight, grow it ever so slightly, like literally like inflation level, um, just grow it. Um, as long as it doesn't implode, we get that earnout. And so I really loved that because it enabled me to feel like, wow, I have three years to run this business kind of as is, to dream bigger with them to scale. If they, this is what is so amazing about those founders and that company, if, they, if we want to invest in growing it, they're going to invest in growing it, not out of our P&L. So that I felt and wanted to pick a partner that was committed, that gave us the enough financially that we felt like this is great because we had a number of offers, a number of them. And I, I ended up saying to Dave, you know, I feel most comfortable going to this group because... Uh, they have. They just want me to really maintain the business. I'll be successful at that. So I won't feel uncomfortable in my time, or at least I, I felt I wouldn't be uncomfortable in my time there. And it would be manageable enough. And then there was tons of opportunity for upside, tons, which, you know, now having been here for a little bit, we're going to hit. So that's what's amazing. Like we, we cross all their services. There's all kinds of opportunities for upside, which is great. But the earnout is more of a it, to me, it, the way this one was structured, that was like, it was more of like a consulting agreement. Like I'm here, I keep the business afloat and I'm, I'm there for them, which is great. Is it tied to revenue or profit? It's tied to a base, rep, maintaining the same margin. You, may, you maintain the same margin you had. So I couldn't like- Profit margin. Like, profit margin, yes. Maintain the same profit margin and um, keeping the revenue basically almost flat, just growing a little bit. Yeah, and uh, one thing I'll add, it, because I have seen a lot of agencies sell and seen a lot of earnouts blow up, and I think that that's um, it's a it's a real risk mm -hmm. uh, when when folks are selling and when agencies are selling. So one thing um, that was really important to us was uh, negotiating full control of the P and L. Yeah. Because uh, without full control of P and L, companies can make decisions that impact the 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 earnout metrics and negatively and then you know and then the 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 uh, seller is uh is screwed basically and so with with full control of the PL you know hiring firing etc um that allows a carry to um execute uh on her own basically with only upside and um if 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 um 
if anything goes wrong, and I, hopefully it won't, but if anything went wrong, it would be our own doing. It wouldn't be the impact of of of, of the larger exactly of, of right. the acquirer, and that, that's not the, that's not in the case. That's not the case in a lot of uh, agency earnouts. No, not not at all. Most times, you know, bookkeeping and accounting gets consolidated and at head head office. So, how did you structure it so that you could, could maintain control over your profit and loss? How did we structure it? We put yeah, it. Like- in- we put it in the agreement. First of all, the, the goals that they set forth were extremely reasonable. So this yeah. year maintains totally flat. You're growing. I mean, we're not increasing over the three years on the ga- on the guaranteed earnout portion. It's under a million dollars. It's it's not a significant number. So, and that's over a three year period. So what we said was we will hit these numbers as long as we have full control over what is spent, and um, who is hired, who is fired, etc. If for some reason. I dipped by $2 million in a year or something, they could come in and we would have shared right together to do that. But Mm. the way that we put it in the agreement was um, all items related to the P&L are under seller discretion. And so that was really it. And having that in there and they have stuck to that. And there's, you know, really it's been, it's been great. If this was about choosing the right partner and right fit because the numbers were the numbers as far as I could, was concerned and you could negotiate one against the other and we were we did um, but but really at the end of the day it's about picking the right partner if you plan to stay if you acknowledge that there's going to be an earnout you, you know I've heard people on on your show who don't you know say no nope, it's not going to be an earnout I'm not going to do it yeah. and, and they managed somehow magically to do it I never felt that that would be the case and I really never wanted it to be what proportion of a deal were you comfortable putting at risk, so to speak, in an earnout. Like some I've heard agency deals where it's like 30% up front, 70% in an earnout, no. like massively no. tilted away from you. Did like did you were you comfortable with sort of 20, 30% kind of thing? Or was it a bigger slike or are you able to share? Oh, we're able to share. Yeah. It was 50. It was 50 50. 50 50. You were you're comfortable with that. We did, yes, but 50-50 and the all in there were also, it's not all based on earnout. There's a variety of other like little tranches of things that you know you're running out. So there's certain things like that. But yeah, we were okay with 50-50. We were. Yeah. It, I'd love to know, and again, I'd love to, you don't have to share obviously yep. the numbers, yep. but a lot of people grow up in, when they start their business, it's worthless. It's just an idea on a napkin. But as it grows, A, it becomes valuable. B, it becomes a huge percentage of their net worth. Yeah. Take me into that retreat Dave, in 2019, did you have a sense of what proportion your net worth was sitting in this company? That's a great question. Yeah, yeah, it's a great question. And, and to your point, it was a huge, it was a huge percentage of our net worth. I mean, um, you know, we've had, we've been fortunate to have a terrific financial planner for, um, uh, for, 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 for many years now. And um, and I'm I'm a I'm a very bullish as you can imagine probably you could imagine very bullish investor uh, you know in aggressive you know growth stocks right and uh, and crypto and all and all these things, but he said to uh, he said I remember when he was um, when he we we were meeting with him a couple of years uh, a couple of years prior he said Dave by far your riskiest investment is your company you know it's it's a huge huge investment and it's by far your risky more it's it's riskier than bitcoin it's riskier than all of your uh technology stock your facebook stock and this and that 
and it hit me just how right he was and just how much of our net worth was in fact uh, tied up in, in 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 our business and i do think that's a big part of of that decision to to um to take to take to take some off the table and um, you know, especially, you know, we, we, we raised two, uh, two kids we on, on our way to raising our third and um, 14 years into this business. And um, yes, I've started some, some, some other businesses and yes, we have other opportunities for sure. But yeah, to your point, it was in, I don't know, 90% probably, oh, um, maybe 95% of our, of our overall sort of a, a, a net worth. And, um, and, and, and I think that's, that's, you know, you, you we have to address uh, the financial realities of that, and 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 think about that as we as we proceeded. And so I think we 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 didn't do it that way per se on uh, in on in that meeting, but um, it, I think it was a big part of the the way that we thought about the the timing of of things. And I will say, you know, that that business was the cash cow for raising our family, buying our homes, doing all of our things. It produced an annual income that was sort of if we needed money, it was always there and we could always pull it. And that shift from now there's money that's in the bank that's all pretty much like invested in retirement or wherever, you know, we put it in lots of places and everything's fully funded and all these things. It's a shift. It's a mindset shift for me to go from having a business that's like, okay, we can just pull this, pull this, where I won't do that. Once the net worth is extracted, I won't do the same because the net worth of a business that you own feels infinite. The net worth of what's sitting as a bank and invested and all of these things doesn't feel that for me. For Dave, I think he's, Dave's all good. But for me, it was, it was a shift. And you could see who's the more conservative of the two. I mean, we're basically, this is why we are such a great balance for one another and need each other um, because of the, the, the shift and the push and pull that we have within our, our own dynamic. Mm-hmm. Wow. What, it's a great illustration. We call it this thing called the freedom point. But when you reach this point where selling your business would allow you to create this yeah. amount of you know, nest, yeah. nest egg that yeah. will fund whatever you want. Uh, fantastic. And I think, um, I hope a lot of people listen to this episode because I think you've, you could really help a lot of people with this, even a couple, you know, especially like the forward thinking around selling before you're fully you know, done. Yeah. Let's get into the actual negotiation itself. Cause it sounds like there were multiple bidders. You, you hired a, uh, an advisor, a broker who went yeah. and shopped the deal. What was, first of all, before I ask you that, what was your, what was your expectation? Shall we say around multiple of EBITDA or multiple of profit? Did you have in going into that process, an aspiration that you thought your business might be worth X or Y multiple of earnings? Yeah, I mean, uh, we, you know, it's pretty it can be a pretty wide range for agencies, anywhere from, you know, uh, I've heard as low as three to as high as eight, and we certainly hoped that we would be on the higher end of that because of uh, some of the things that we talked about, subscription uh, uh, recurring revenue, and um, uh, in a in a in a trendy area uh, of, of marketing. Um, but you know you don't know until you know, and it's, and it's the same thing with multiple bidders. I mean, obviously, um, if if we knew that if we could attract more than one bidder, um, we'd um, we'd be in much better shape. I'll tell you a super funny, um, somewhat related story, but not too related. When I had my first, when I wrote my first book, um, 
I was so excited to write a book and to have a, somebody that wanted my book. Um, I had I, McGraw Hill came to me and said, "Hey, will you, would you write a book?" I said, "Great." Um, so somebody said, "You need an agent." I said, "Why do I need an agent?" They asked me to write a book. She said, "Well, no, you need an agent." So, um, so I hired an agent, and she said, "Well, we're going to shop your book around before we 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 sign with McGraw Hill." I said, "Why would you do that? They they already uh, they wanted the book already. We already have a deal." She said, "That's literally my job. That's literally why you hire me." And so I said, oh, okay, yeah, you're right. So, so she, she shopped it around and she was able to get the, to optimize, you know, what the deal was for. And I think um, you don't know until you know. So, so by, by hiring a broker, we were able to, uh, to, to shop it around and to generate multiple offers and to generate, you know, the, the best possible multiple. What was the reaction? Like how many sort of interested parties did you get close on? How many letters of intent did you get? That kind of stuff. Okay. So we had at least six interested parties. We got, we met with four. So one thing that was very interesting was because I was staying on, I was the person in the interviews and Dave was not, which was also very hard for the dynamic because I would have to communicate to him. But the broker suggested that when you're the person who's staying on, you should be the person doing the interview because they're really evaluating you. And what if they fall in love with Dave? And then it's like, it would really complicate it. So we, we, hmm. it was me, which was, was pretty crazy. Yeah. And then I, I think, um, so we had a lot of interest and then we had a really wacky one where the, it was an inexperienced buyer um, from an agency that ha- had never done an acquisition before, had had several failed acquisition attempts and offered all cash up front, hmm. which was a fascinating <laughs> journey. So then I'm like, okay, what do we do? Do we pursue this? What multiple do- of earnings was it? Um, what I, it was about, well, it was about the same offer. So it was eight and a half times EBITDA. One Sorry, and eight and a half times EBITDA all cash? The, the all cash was a little Oh, less. all cash was, no. Oh, wait, wait, I'll figure it out. It's, it was six and a half, six and a half, six and a half, six and a half times EBITDA. Okay, don't worry. But it was a pipe dream. Okay. So picture at this point, I have an LOI from 10 Pearls, which is my acquirer, which is a fair offer. At that time, it was probably seven and a half times EBITDA. And I felt, um, I was feeling really good about them. I had met them in person. I felt good. But then this all cash kind of crazy offer comes in. Wacky, wackadoo. Like just the whole, everything about it was wacky. And I met the woman that was in charge of this acquisition on behalf of this agency. And I got caught, we were like, okay, let's acquire a million women-owned businesses and we're going to take over the world. And we have this much money that we can do it with and talk about growth on, she's like, and, and next year's goal will be $30 million, which was nowhere near, you know, we'd basically have to double. So looking at all of this, um, I had to think, do I go with this and risk 10 pearls or do I not? And actually this is very interesting. Dave was like, don't do it. It's not that when something looks too good to be true, it is. And he knew, but I said, well, I have to try because also it was, it was also, I got caught up in the whole idea of what, what it could be. Like, it wasn't like I was going to take the cash and be out, but the enough cash up front is so much security. And so I took him um, and I called 10 pearls and I said, listen, this is too big for me not to explore. It's too much money up front. I told them literally what it was. It's probably not going to work. I hope you'll still talk to me when we come back. Like this was after there were a couple of other offers. I didn't like them. I'm like at a good place with 10 pearls. I'm comfortable. They were extremely gracious. 
he, the owner said, I would do the same thing for my family and try, which I think speaks extremely highly of them. I tried, I get on one, we, I was like three weeks into due diligence thinking this is going to close. So you'd sign the oh, LOI. I signed. <laughs> and then I went through due diligence by myself. I'm trying to describe to Dave how wacky it is. It's wacky. We're not talking. She's, there's no evaluation of the past business. It's only talking about the future. Very excited. I'm like, this is the easiest due diligence ever. Finally, they get me in the room with like, they're going to have the parent company um, lawyer and accountant and whoever on the phone. And I just watched their faces asking me questions. They're like, so how long do your clients sign for? I'm like, a year. Like, okay. Um, how long are your contracts? I'm like, they're 12 months. Like, that's what they are. And I watched their faces. And then right after that call, uh, they called and were like, we would like to readjust the offer to be, I think at that time it was 60% upfront they wanted to do. And I was like, oh no, 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 no. You guys are wacky. This is all wacky. I would never earn that earn out. I'm calling 10 pearls. And that's when our broker really helped us. We called and we were actually able to, this is ironic. We were able to negotiate more. You would think we would have negotiated less because we were coming from a place of weakness. We were able to negotiate more because we said, we really want to go with you, but here are the things that are bothering us. Here are the things. Cause they knew we would get multiple offers. We probably would never get all cash up front. That's ridiculous. But, but they knew um, that we would get more offers. And so they were willing to, and they, ca they came up quite a bit. And so it was great. And they felt happy and we were happy. So it's kind of an awesome story. They, they forgave me. Wow. I'm so, I'm so intrigued by that. Um, I don't know where to start. So the all cash offer of six and a half, yep. you're like, this is too good to be true, but if they're willing to pay me all cash. And at the time you're looking at a, a seven and a half, but 50% upfront, 50% Correct. Correct. risk. So you're like, Correct. okay. Correct. So six and a half upfront. And, and what was it about the way you answered the questions to the corporate folks during diligence that triggered them to lower the basics of an agency, John. <laughs> How long? John, John, it was there. It was a bait and switch. It, I mean, it was a bait and switch. It, 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 that's it, what he he felt it, from the beginning. He'll tell you. It, he would have known. There was not. There was not a, a true intent to close at that. At that. At that. At those deal terms. Uh, from I. I. I just don't think there was. And you know, look what we we learned. The, the important lesson, if it if it seems too good to be true, it probably is. Right. That that is a really it's important. A good lesson important lesson. And um, there are those that would negotiate, go, go into a negotiation, pretending to be in good faith when their plan all along, I'm not saying this was that, this is what happened, but there are those where, where, where there's their plan all along, one's plan all along is to go, go, go late into the process. And then the last minute, try to win. And now I've heard stories too, literally folks on the, on the, on the closing table, yes, who, uh, yep. trying to then change the terms of the deal at the last minute. And, and I think that um, I'm, I'm really glad that we, it didn't even go that far. So the good news is uh, it didn't, it, you know, it was a couple of weeks of due diligence um, uh, and very, very stressful, difficult times, but we got through it. We got to another deal you know, and the rest is history. But I did feel very ashamed. I felt very much like, oh my God, I've told my, I called my mother crying saying, mommy, you're never going to have to worry. Like this is all up front and look at this. And then I have to be like, um, actually I was kind of hoodwinked. Like this is not actually true. And then in the end of the day, our next offer was fabulous. It was fabulous. More money than we ever dreamed about when we started this business. But 
it was very humiliating to me that I, I felt like I fell for it. And um, if something's too good to be true, it usually is. is, the, is that's going to go like maybe on my tombstone. <laughs> <laughs> maybe it's not the Again, most I'm just so grateful for you sharing because of I think course. this you know bait and switch you refer to it or, or retrading yep. is yep. just so common and yes. uh it, a lot of people as you did Carrie got get get emotionally committed to the deal tell people their employees their family yep. their spouse and they're like yeah kind of embarrassed about about it and and you had the courage to put the brakes on when you put the brakes on yep. to the y'all cash deal what was the reaction to the other side did they try to negotiate well we had first of all this was the benefit of having a broker too who was great okay so she did the communication here i was just done it's interesting they reached out after our acquisition happened and was announced to congratulate us so, okay thank you I, I really haven't communicated since because uh, it was very it was very, very painful. I haven't felt foolish. I've been running a business for a long time. I haven't felt foolish in a long time. And that, that really did tap into a feeling of foolishness. And especially because he knew, he knew. And I was oh, yeah, always oh. right. <laughs> he was always right. And, and he couldn't, and he couldn't join the call. So he felt it was like, for him, it must've been like watching a train wreck. Like I'm on these calls by myself. I'm trying to say, oh no, it's great. It's great. It's great. He knows. And then it falls apart. Yeah, that analogy almost holds up, except I'm actually on the train. You're on the train with me. <laughs> with you. I'm sorry. <laughs> so it's not, it's not, that's, it's not, it was, it was, it was, it was difficult. But I mean, again, the important thing is we, we learned and some we lessons and, uh, and, 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 and we were able to, to get to the other yes. side. Yes. Different, you know, different so they came and said, so you, you heard from your broker that they were changing the terms or did they tell you directly that changing the terms? No, they told, they told the broker and she was like. The broker. And uh, so the broker, realized, the broker I mean, knew also the broker and Dave that had a good well, talk. Well, right? But the broker realized that um that she that uh that what she we basically said, you know, you can talk to them if you want, but it's probably really not worth your time at this point. Um because I mean that's it's a that's a fundamental uh betrayal, uh where 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 the terms change that much. I mean, it's just not yeah. so it, it didn't really make sense to continue the conversation. Yeah, and your calculus at the end of the day, having like water under the bridge and, and hindsight being 2020, is that it wasn't a naive acquire. It was likely a strategic move for the yes. retrade. Yes, I I, I tend to um, believe that you know positive intent and always. So my initial reaction was um, naivete that like they didn't mm. realize. I don't think that's what it was. I think like in, in retrospect, when I, you know, now I've, I've kind of joined Dave's team on that, but either way, does it matter? It doesn't matter whether it's somebody who's trying to manipulate you or someone who doesn't know what they're doing, you know what you're doing. And you know that in the history of agency deals, you're generally not getting that type. Why would you, who would acquire a business that has 12 sure. month contracts around services for, you know, for all cash upfront? The owner could leave. I happen to be one human who wouldn't have left. I would have actually worked so hard to earn their money back for them. And then some, but most, most entrepreneurs are entrepreneurs and they say, nope, bye. I checked out. I, I really wanted to be in it. And when you went back, see a lot of people hearing this would be like, how on earth did they go back to 10 pearls? You know, tail between the legs kind of thing saying, yeah. Oh, we got it messed up or whatever. Like I, what I'm, what I'm much more used to hearing is that when you go back to the original dance party, the terms are less Worse. favorable. 
right? Because you're like, well, you wanted somebody else and now we're, you know, we're in a lower. How did you get them to go up? <laughs> That's blowing my mind. I mean, I think, John, I think that the reality is, and um, I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll toot her horn since she won't toot her own horn. The business had a lot of value and they knew it. And the, the economics of the deal didn't, cha didn't change uh, with the fact that this other deal fell through. Um, if anything, they knew that we would have other suitors and uh, that if, 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 if they did walk away, that we were okay with that because we would have other suitors and we, the business did have a lot of value. And so I think that it was, it was our own confidence in the value of the business. And frankly, more important, the actual value of the business that Carrie had, had, had built up and had worked on that allowed us to get uh, favorable deal terms uh, with, with 10 pearls. I also just think that when we met, we knew it was a really good fit. We, we knew when we met prior to all of this. So it broke my heart to say no to them in the first place. And when I said no, they understood why I was saying no and that I might be back. So I think it was, okay, how can we structure this so that you feel really good about it? So I don't have to, because their offer wasn't the best at the time. So they had to make it the best in order for us to work. Like just because you love each other, the offer still has to make sense for the great business. So, sure. so, and so we got to that middle ground and it was, it was wonderful and, and it worked as it should. When you originally presented the, the all cash deal to 10 burls and, and, and said, like, don't hate me, but I got to do this because, you know, whatever. Did they attempt to negotiate yeah. at all at that point? Yeah, they, they played around. They, they're very sophisticated um, with financial modeling and they're very smart. I mean, this is like, I went with like um, the smart, safe boyfriend versus the crazy lunatic boyfriend. Like it's, they, they are not the boyfriend because of course I I'm going to say, which is Dave, uh, can we just get right. that? Dave is the best boyfriend. That's my only boyfriend. But you know, they, they did, but they weren't going to go beyond what the business was actually worth and they shouldn't have. And so, so that's what I loved about them too. I felt that if they were treating me this thoughtfully about our acquisition, then I knew that as they grew as a business, um, they would do the same with other companies that they acquired. And so I felt, I felt just really like it was Imagine if it. So they did. They came up a little when we said all cash, but he knew. He said, first of all, it's like, he's, he's like, Harry, nobody does that. And also, you, you're coming back. Come back. I, I will talk to you the minute you come back. Don't feel bad. Like, basically, he's like, if, when it doesn't work, don't feel bad. And I was like, I know, but I got to try. I got to try it. That's why. And what would I have thought if I didn't try it? What would, it, what would have happened? I would be sitting here right now telling you I had an all cash offer, but I chose the nice boyfriend. Okay. So I chose the nice boyfriend. Great. With all those but like, boyfriend and I would always think about, about the total, the all cash boyfriend. That's the, you can't do that. Dave's no. going to be really insecure after this call. No. <laughs> everything. He's everything. So I would love to explore and, and maybe you guys can choose who wants to answer this question, but You've gone from having like a really profitable, successful company, albeit a, in your own sort of admission, maybe Dave, as much as 80 or 90% of your net worth, a huge you know, chunk, yeah, to, you know, being liquid, uh, you know, having money and, and, and care. you're saying all the things are funded and you got all the, you know, everything's sort of done. Like, how does that feel? Like, did, did you buy yourself a trophy or did... Is it the feeling that you had, like, Carrie, you're laughing. Why don't you start? 
maybe what? Okay, I'll start and then I'll let Dave answer really. I have tremendous financial anxiety and always did. So you're going to get like full, real vulnerable moments. Like Dave used to say to me when we, when we had no money or, you know, very early and I worked to put $40,000 in the bank in savings as an emergency fund. And I would take a thousand dollars. I'd have to fund a car repair. And then I'd be like, oh my God, there's only $39,000 in the bank. Dave would say to me, how much money do you need in the bank to feel safe and secure? The, there's no answer because there's never enough money for me to feel safe and secure. I'm out of my mind. So the net worth shift actually was weirdly worse for me because I, I come from, even though there are millions of dollars sitting there, mm -hmm. I feel like, oh my God, this is all we have. And what if everything goes away for the, for the rest of our lives? What if everything goes away? And then we have to plan for this. And okay, we're going to live to like 93. Let me do the math. I Nuts. So he has to deal with the nuts and it's not, you know, that's not so easy to deal with. So we do celebrate, we are taking trips, we're doing things, but it is a hard shift for me, which is why I'm laughing because I feel terrible that this man, you know, helped scale and bring about this amazing business. We finally have what we want. And his lunatic wife is still nervous that one day we're going to lose everything in the world. Right? Well, I mean, I think um, I, I mean you, you, your vulnerability is powerful, yeah. and if 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 very sad, and and it's very, I mean, it's very very sad. Um, I, I will say, you know, if, if, because you were honest, yep. you know, I'll continue with your honesty. I, I felt very surprised. Uh, we we sat down um, to do a budget, and <laughs> and it was like we we need to cut this 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 and this. <laughs> From our spending. I'm sorry. Like, I'm sorry. And it was it was really surprised. I, I mean, I, I felt I felt very surprised given how much money we had in the bank. And and I think that um, ultimately, you know, I think it's the, the lesson learned, it, which is important for for um, for owners for for everyone listening to hear. John is is you know our issues are issues, and selling a company doesn't doesn't, doesn't change what we have anxiety about or fear of or depression around or or issues with i mean our issues are our issues right so before before we sold the company yes we had 90 percent of our uh net net um uh of, uh, of our of our net worth, net worth in in our business unlimited potential and um carrie had a lot of fin financial anxiety and i didn't have any i, I knew we'd be fine and we sold our company. We have millions of dollars in the bank and Carrie still has financial anxiety and I still know we'll be fine. And so, so, so our issues are our issues. So, so I think, I think it, it's, it's good insight because now we know what we, you know, need to keep, keep working on. And, you know, the, 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 the same question that I asked Carrie, you know, years ago about what, what would you need to be, to be, uh, to be happy, to be safe, to feel secure. Um, we can continue to answer that question um, on a year in and year out basis. Right now, it's also now it's more around income because now our guaranteed income per right. year isn't the same. the same. And how can I, as Carrie's husband, best support her feelings of um, security around around uh, around income if that's what's important? It's to a her. it's a shift when you and this is the learning when you sell your company you're going from something that may be most of your net worth but has the unlimited potential because that potential is within your control to money which has potential but money potential is like limited you can invest it in some places and earn some but you know when it's you selling your stuff that's unlimited 
potential. But what I, of course, have to realize is that all of that unlimited potential of me is still there. I didn't lose me in selling that company. And so it's, it's um, I think, specifically for, so if there's someone out there who is a risk-averse, sort of risk-averse, reluctant entrepreneur who started their agency, who was a nervous wreck, who did it maybe for control or more time with their kids or anything like that, they got it to a scalable place, they're nervous about when they sell, you know, it's all the same. Another thing that would go in my tombstone is six of one, half a dozen of the other. Whether it's in the business or it's in the bank, it doesn't change the shit, how you feel about it, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, for sure. But I do have to ask the follow-up question, which is, you know, Dave, you said like the issues before the selling are the same as after selling is the same issues. Do you regret selling? No. Do you? No. No. Not even a little bit. No, I don't. I don't think so. I mean, I, I think um, I don't think we we need to have a trophy to celebrate. And I think that um, I, I want for my wife feelings of safety and security and happiness, as I'm sure she wants for me. You know, me me to feel feel happy. And and I think that. But ultimately, the 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 reasons that we sold for the time that we sold are completely still true and the value that we were able to generate uh and the wealth that we were able to generate completely still still there and 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 look we you know we joke about about um problems and financial anxiety but you know it's a lot easier <laughs> to deal with rich people problems exactly. than to deal with poor people problems exactly. right and i think we need to we if we take a step back and say um yeah, yeah, we might still have one of us might still have some anxiety and another might still feel, you know, discontent or whatever. But like, like Harry said, we have funded our children's oh my God, educations and lives. Did. And we have, you know, we, we've, 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 we have, we have made it such that our family will be safe and secure for the rest of their lives. Yes. And, and that's, that's a very, um, it's a very fulfilling for me. It's a very fulfilling feeling and um, a feeling of great pride in the work and the sort of culmination of the work that we did with with like. I just like I, I, I get, let's stop there because it just isn't going to get any better than that. I think you guys have been just incredible guests. I think there's so many lessons for for folks to take away, right from how you package the business, the, the productizing, and 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 all the, the the tips and tricks around negotiating and and the lessons learned around retrading. So I'm I'm just amazingly grateful to you two. Where where can now the book? Oh, there's remind me, Dave is called Likable Social Media. You've read up. It three so, times. Well, I've, I've written I've written uh, four books. Forgive <laughs> me. What's the book? Work it. Um, so Carrie's book is Work It Secrets for Success from the Boldest Women in Business. That's a great I book. love that. And yes. um, Likeable Social Media is in its uh, third edition and uh, it's in 13 languages. And um, I've written a book called Likeable Business and uh, The Art of People as well. And um, uh, one business, if I could, can I mention it? Well, uh, one of my. Yeah, plug my, away. Yeah. Thanks. Um, you know, one business that um, started a couple of years ago that I'm really, really uh, uh, bullish on and excited about, even if I'm. I'm uh, 15 minutes late for a meeting with my co-co-founder. Uh, oh, sorry. Uh, it's called okay. um, it's called a Apprentice, and it's a um, managed marketplace that connects CEOs and entrepreneurs with the best and brightest college students that serve as their executive assistant. Oh, so I love this! Imagine if you had a oh, this is uh, cool. If you were to hire a Harvard business student, uh, 
the day that they graduate, you'd have to pay him or her seventy-five to a hundred thousand dollars. But if you hire that same exact person, John, a year prior to graduating through me as an apprentice, you'll pay just thirty percent of that cost. Wow! I I pay the students, um, and they get an amazing experience working with entrepreneurs sure. and small business owners in a real life experience. So I started that actually with my uh, apprentice. You know, I have been, uh, met, we mentioned college students. We, I've had, been, had college students working for me for uh, uh, 14 years. And um, uh, Rob, who was my uh, executive assistant at the time while he was at Hamilton said to me, I think there's a business model here. And I said, yeah, you're right. So we started that uh, business uh, and we'll do a million dollars this year and it's growing very quickly. Which I love this idea, Dave. So where do people learn about Apprentice? What, uh, what's thank the... you. It's uh, chooseapprentice.com. 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 Mention, mention uh, the Go build to down. sell and get a 25% off. Whoa. Wow. Okay. Oh. Wow. First year. <laughs> well, that's right. You know, it's funny because I've many times I've thought, of hiring apprentices. And I thought like, there's these great business schools and, and, and we could provide, we probably can't afford them when, you know, they're fully right. out, but I know we can help them a ton yep. by cutting their teeth in the business world. And we would love to have, that's a cool business. So it's called apprentice, chooseapprentice.com. Is that right? Really a great business. It is. And thank you for letting me uh, riff on it for a moment. Uh, and yeah, no. the other thing, you know, responsiveness is one of uh, my personal core values, John. So I won't speak for Carrie because she's got a, biz, uh, a likable uh, business to run and an earn out to do. But if anyone has any questions, uh, uh, comments, uh, needs for help, uh, I do office hours every week, Thursday afternoons, uh, scheduledave.com. I meet with anyone that wants to meet and uh, you can, you know, hit me up on any of the social networks. I'm happy to be helpful if I can be. That's very generous. And we'll put all that in the show notes, uh, builttocell.com. Uh, Carrie, Dave, this was a, a true pleasure for me. Thank you for doing it. Thank you Thanks so Thanks so much, much for having us, John. It was, the pleasure was all ours. Hey, if you like today's episode, you're going to love my new book, The Art of Selling Your Business. The book was inspired by the cohort of my guests over the years who have been able to negotiate an exit far better than the benchmark in their industry, sometimes two or three times more than I would have expected. I was curious to understand the tactics and strategies of these entrepreneurs and what they do differently from average performers. The result is a playbook for punching above your weight when it comes to selling your business. To learn more, go to builttosell.com slash selling, where we put together a collection of gifts for listeners who order the book. Just go to builttosell.com slash selling. Built to Sell Radio is produced by Haley Parkhill. Our audio and video engineer is Dennis Labataglia. If you like what you've just heard, subscribe to get a new episode delivered to your inbox each week. Just go to builttosell.com. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at facebook.com slash built to sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.